I'm Sophie Frost. This is The Hidden Constellation. For the past year, I've been travelling the length and breadth of England, visiting the museums that make up the Science Museum Group, talking with staff and volunteers about the role of technology in their everyday working lives. We will shortly be arriving at Bradford Interchange. If you are leaving the train here, mind the gap between the train and platform edge. I've been speaking with individuals across the workforce at Science Museum Group to understand the new, hidden, distributed, legacy and collective forms of digital work taking place across this vast and eclectic group of science and technology museums. The Hidden Constellation explores the future of work in museums, presenting the Science Museum Group as a case study of a museum service thinking about the value and impact of technology in the work that it does. This is the second of two episodes where we explore some of what I'm calling the more hidden digital labour that takes place across Science Museum Group. In the last episode, we looked at what can often be hidden within the digital activities of those working in the search engine archive at National Railway Museum and reflected on some of the invisible emotional dimensions involved in strategically digitising a collection. We saw how archivists are doing valuable digital work whilst responding to competing priorities as custodians of vast flying Scotsmen with tender-sized collections, as inheritors of legacy digital systems, and as facilitators of archive users with varied interests and enthusiasms. We learnt how this requires a mindful approach to digital activity, one that prioritises the need to make accessible previously unheard, socially relevant and person-centred stories above all else. What was most evident in my conversations with the team at NRM was the sense of care that they had towards their roles as custodians, inheritors and facilitators of the search engine archive. Indeed, this is an attitude that I found in all my conversations with staff and volunteers across the group when discussing the role and import of technology for the museum's future. By care, I quite like the definition put forward in the early 1990s by political scientists Joan Tronto and Berenice Fisher of caring as and I quote, a species activity that includes everything that we do to maintain, continue and repair our world so that we can live in it as well as possible, end quote. In this episode, I'm going to apply this feminist understanding of care to the task of further exploring what is hidden within digital labour in museums as we shift our gaze to the work involved in documentation and collections management. Well, I have had lots of times where I've just been like, I just can't think about this anymore. Can you give me some like mundane Excel task to do? (laughs) That's Anne Sharman, Collections Data Officer for the Science Museum Group, who is also based at the National Railway Museum in York. We're going to hear a lot from Anne in this episode. Much of what she and her team in digitisation and collection services do is foundational to the large-scale digital transformation task of getting the group to think differently and digitally about documentation and cataloguing. By default, however, this work tends to be hidden from public view, although fundamental to how collections are accessed digitally. Before we continue, I feel I must say another word or two about how I'm choosing to understand the concept of hidden. To be clear, there has always been hidden labour in museums, in all large cultural institutions. The ways they have historically been established often means that certain voices are heard, certain stories are told and certain workloads are celebrated more than others. This hasn't always been a negative thing. There's a lot that goes on behind the scenes which doesn't necessarily need to be known about. 
But I would argue that if we want truly inclusive cultural and heritage spaces, then labour needs to be understood and celebrated more broadly. In this episode, I'm solely interested in what kinds of labour remain hidden within digital activities in a museum service, so we can better begin the project of recognising all the forms of digital labour that are crucial to future-proofing the museum. Here's Anne explaining her daily activities. What I do as a collections data officer um, is quite varied, but I tend to support our collections management programming, our database um, work, data cleaning, and kind of liaising with curatorial team and exhibitions team. And my, I kind of see it as demystifying data and the database for people. So um, my background is documentation, so I kind of bridge that gap between the objects in the real world and the digital like the records on the database um, and so now in my data role I kind of see that it's expanded more as looking at data and our database as a whole and as an object in itself so I no longer work with objects physically um, but I kind of look after their digital counterparts I suppose you would describe it um, and yeah so that kind of can be anything from helping to untangle like a legacy data issue or um, using uh, Excel to load records in on mass. So, for example, if someone's cataloguing a new acquisition and there's lots and lots of objects, often we like to work outside of MIMSI first, so in Excel, and then I transform that data and turn it into a loader, which then goes in to MIMSI on mass. Um, so, yeah, it's kind of a bit of everything. So, I was brought in to help support the digital like and data integration aspect of the One Collection project at Blythe, but I've tried really hard to like when I'm talking about the data with people and when I'm talking about the records to like get this sort of understanding of this is information and like when we do things to our objects you're creating data because I think people sometimes see data as this like abstract concept mm-hmm. but like when you give something a hazard record or when you look at an object and you um, take a picture of it or you give it a condition record you're just generating more data um, so yeah hopefully people have seen that that's what, what I've been trying to do In the first episode, Dr Tim Boone talked about the Congruence Engine project and how he hoped it might act as a translator between those in the museum who felt digitally literate and those who felt less so. And when I say what we're trying to do with the project, it's, in my mind, a lot of our work is to do with helping the people who work digitally and the people who work historically to be able to speak some of the same language. Mm. This bears resemblance to what Anne describes as being a kind of human bridge between the physical and the virtual, trying to translate and explain to staff the language of data and show that every time a staff member acquires, catalogues or documents something, they generate something else in the virtual world. Here's Anne talking about how she began to get more interested in data during a previous role at Science Museum Group, where she spent six months exclusively working on data cleaning for the medicine galleries to support its collections moving online. So I had um, a spreadsheet of the cataloguing standard and then these are the records. This is what the starting standard was before I got going and then this is what they ended up being at. Like, the, you know, they started off at basic standard. By the time I finished with them, they were core or some of them were enhanced. Some of them never met the standard to start off with. By the end of it, they met basic, you know. And so that kind of introduced me to this idea of oh, well, we can use the data to track progress on lots of different things. And then the data officer job came up and I thought, I could do that. Mm. So what exactly is hidden in Anne's digital labour? 
okay, so I made some notes because mm. I'm very type A and that's how I work. I think the best way for me to like explain it is to give you an example of what I'm doing at the moment. So we want to roll out barcoding and using um, Axial Move, which is a digital like scanner to update locations and things. Um, so Axial are the company that make our database, Mimsy. And this is a piece of handheld software where you can scan um, a shelf and update an object location by scanning the object barcode and pressing move and it'll do it all for you and it talks to our database and it creates the records for you. So we've been using that at Blythe House and we use it at NCC in Building 1. And the reason we can do that is because we have an infrastructure in our database of, this is so boring, we call it a facility hierarchy. So basically every single shelf, every single bay, every single cupboard at Blythe House has its own facility record in the database and it is linked together in a big hierarchy. So you open up Blythe House and you can see all of the rooms and under all of the rooms you can see all of the shelves and under all of the shelves, you know, that kind of thing. And we have that at Building 1 as well. We don't have that anywhere else across the group except a few at at Manchester. So in order for us to use this barcoding software, to use this digital stuff that we have, we have to transfer every single current facility record that we have, which is in a different model, to this new one. And like that's every single shelf, drawer, showcase, um, palette across the group has to be represented in the database, um, which is a lot. Um, And to do that, I've been collating every single record that I can find. I've been sending my docs officer colleagues to take pictures of different showcases to be like, would you call this a cabinet or is this a cupboard? Like, um, is this fixed racking? You know, we're using the opportunity to standardize our terminology. So we are using the same terminology across the group. Um, And all of this work will probably take maybe a year, maybe longer. But ultimately, it's so that in a year's time, you can just scan a barcode and press a button and you've created a location record on your handheld device. So I would say that that's quite hidden because ultimately, when it's in place, hopefully nobody will notice that all of that labour's had to happen and they'll just be like, oh, this is nice. Mm -hmm. I can update this. Here's Jack Kirby, Associate Director of Collection Services, explaining the context behind why the Science Museum Group opted for barcoding technology in the organisation of their collection. So one of the most interesting things I've done was go on a tour of an Amazon warehouse, um, which are highly tech-enabled, everything driven by people following what the computer is telling them, Every object, every item in that warehouse barcode located to a particular location. Now, Amazon have the throughput. They have stuff coming in and out all the time. So for them, it's probably more cost-effective than museums to invest in automating things. But when you start to see the potential of knowing where every piece of inventory you hold is mm-hmm. instantly, knowing how many you've got, knowing where the spaces are on the shelves, that sort of thing, you then apply that to a museum store environment stuff goes in and out more slowly but you're fundamentally talking about asset management Mm -hmm. so part of it has been for me to employ people who do know more about the tech than I do Mm. Um, but um, with that overarching thing of well what is the rest of the world doing and what can we learn from that if you take a questioning approach to museum practice rather than saying well we do it this way because we've always done it this way 
then then I think you can learn. You know, the standards and things are useful, but they do they should evolve as well mm. rather than be something that holds you back. Concerns around standards come up a lot in conversations with staff at Science Museum Group about the digital activities that go on behind the scenes. Samaya Langley, Digital Preservation Manager for the group, said something similar when we spoke. Let's talk about one of my favourite topics to talk about at the moment, which is standards. There's an assumption that you can get them off the shelf and that they exist. And there's loads of standards out there. And there's so many different standards used for different things but there's a whole lot more standards that are needed. We'll be hearing from Samaya again later in this episode. For now, let's go back to Anne talking about what's involved in putting some of these new standards into practice through the new barcoding system. We have little labels um, with a barcode on. So we have two different types of barcoding. You have object barcodes, which we buy in, and they have the SMG prefix and then a running number, and you stick that on an object. But we're also, we also have barcodes for the um, location. So it's an LOC barcode number and it's literally stuck on a shelf and then you can scan it. And that, that location like barcode is held within the facility record on Mimsy. So there's a field which you populate with that data so that when you scan it, Mimsy knows what you're talking about. <laughs> it's quite a lot. Like This is the thing, like trying to explain it to anyone I I need to get it really straight in my head because like I think I underestimate how technical it actually is because I interact with it every single day yeah the kinds of digital work that Anne and her team do essentially ensuring new standards are met have a specific place within what she calls the database hierarchy of the organization as such she feels they tend to be valued in a particular way and there's so much exciting stuff happening like there's so much exciting stuff happening I just really hope that we can start to recognise the very boring things that are happening at the bottom of the, the database hierarchy. So I would like to see documentation like embedded into our practice. So like, I guess what, one of the things I can think of is when we do a new acquisition, um, the curatorial team, registration, um, conservation have the opportunity to feed into an acquisition at the time and say, you know, conservation would be like, oh, we don't have capacity to do this, or we don't have, you know, and photography, we get, they get notified, you know, are you going to be able to photograph this, this kind of thing. And actually, I wonder whether documentation is maybe absent there, because an object that enters the collection, the database, you get a record on the database, well, that's just the beginning of that record's, like, life. You know, that data is going to be added to, it's going to be augmented, it's going to be, you know, maybe transferred between systems, it's going to all these different types of things are going to happen to this record, just as many things are going to happen to the record as are going to happen to the object. So I would really like to see documentation and my kind of data stuff be seen as part of digitization. But I still feel this sense of separation of documentation. You're still very much working with the objects in the stores. You know, yes, you're doing data cleaning. Yes, you're doing really important object research and, and, and records, like you're looking after the records and all that kind of stuff but you're still working with the objects. And I still feel a little bit as though the fact that we still work with the objects in the stores or on the gallery or whatever, almost, it's like a separation Mm. between digital and that kind of documentation, whereas actually it's the absolute linchpin, like it's the grounding. You cannot do anything fun and fancy with your object if it doesn't have a database record, if that database record isn't well, you know, populated, if you don't know where the object is. Mm. 
So I yeah. guess that's how I would want it. I would want it to be valued more. At this point, I want to introduce some of the important thinking around museum information infrastructures undertaken by Dr. Hannah Turner in her 2020 book, Cataloguing Culture, which focused specifically on legacies of colonialism in museum documentation. For Turner, colonialism has historically worked through technologies of museum bureaucracy, where modes of organising, classifying and cataloguing museum acquisitions became accepted categories. This quote sums up her thoughts well. The practical politics of the museum are made manifest not only in exhibits and displays, but also in the material durability and performance of terms, naming conventions and the historical fields applied to the documentation of cultural heritage. The temporal build-up or stickiness of terms, categories and practices, which is linked to earlier epistemological modes, constitutes a socio-technical information infrastructure. If we apply Turner's assumption that the politics of the museum plays out in practices of documentation to what we have just heard from Jack, Samaya and Anne about digitally standardising the group's collection, we can recognise this work as a crucial part of the, to use Turner's description, socio-technical information infrastructure of the museum. Daily tasks, such as establishing suitable naming conventions for furniture, cleaning up and figuring out existing problems in the data, and dealing with the acquisition backlog, require persistence, care, clarity and impartiality to get the job done. Just as Turner describes the catalogue as an object with its own history, we hear Anne describing the database as an object in itself. This approach, which recognises the marks and traces created by museum staff, whether in the past, in the physical realm, or in the present, in the virtual realm, is useful when exploring the significance of this kind of often undervalued work within the overall museum complex. Because obviously this is going to be quite disruptive. We're going to have, you know, maybe some periods of time where you can't use a particular facility record and you've got to you know there might be a bit of um, pain along the way where like at the moment in Manchester for example we have both we have two systems working alongside each other so we do have some facilities like some um, spaces that are compatible with axial move and then we have some spaces that are not which can cause a few issues because the way you interact with those on the MIMSI client like in the database is slightly different. I think the, the ideal is that we use it to update location records for everything every time. Okay. However, that involves a lot of... We've had to do a lot of intellectual work. So, like, that's the other thing. is like I don't have a huge amount of, like, tangible stuff to show for the year I've spent discussing the concepts of what's a temporary exhibition? What's a permanent gallery? You know, would you call this a display space or would you call this a gallery? You know, that kind of stuff. I don't have anything tangible to show for that. But we had to do that intellectual kind of grounding before we could start going out to people and saying, this is what we want to do. This is how we're going to do it. Um, and we're just getting to that stage of, I feel like I'm like putting myself out there showing people, this is what we've been working on and this is what we want to do. Um, what do you think? But also, this is happening, kind of whether you like it or not, so we want to make it as painless as possible. I don't know. What Anne and her colleagues are doing is a continuation of the systems thinking in action that I've mentioned previously in relation to new digital activities at Science Museum Group. What we see here is precisely what is advocated by systems theorists, Anne's task as collections data officer is to motivate people to change, 
catalyse opportunities for collaboration, focus people to work on a few coordinated changes over time to achieve system-wide impacts and stimulate continuous learning. In this kind of idea of trying to demystify things, we're actually going to create, I've been calling it colloquially like a facilities bible, where basically we have a list of every single term that we are using in that um, in the facilities authority. So every single, you know, showcase, um, grattanel cabinet, um, table. And we have the term and then we've got a definition. Um, so there was a lot of work done at Building One um, to come up with these furniture definitions. And so we've used those where they exist and then where they don't exist. So we're going to have literally like a book or like a piece of a document that's got your term the, the way it's going to be referred to in the database, a definition and hopefully an example image um, so that people can see it if they need to. But the other thing as well is like we're kind of hoping to build an infrastructure where actually people don't need to interact with it that much. All they have to do is scan the barcode. Um, so it's hard, isn't it? It's a hard balance because I do want people to understand it and I do want people to um, know what it what it means and what they're doing when they create a location record you know when they create a location record they are creating a link between an object and a facility and you are saying to the database this object is now associated with this facility and until it moves it will keep that relationship and like i do want people to understand that but at the same time i don't know whether they need to necessarily like should they get bogged down in it it's really hard to know um like where to pitch it as well we kind of have tried to make it like a practical um, session. So we do it like an hour and we, we go through the, like, the theory, you know, when you scan this, you're doing this. And when you do this, you're doing this. And then here's some practice object records for you to test. Um, and again, it's partly about trying to bridge that gap between the physical object and the data. So that's why we added this element of scan, like physically print out these barcodes for you to play with and test so that they can ground it in the workflow that they're dealing with. Because I don't deal with their workflow. So somewhere like Blythe House have a very specific workflow. And so when I'm showing them how to use Axial Move, I always have to kind of have this caveat in my head of, okay, so this is how it works, like in theory, but you're going to have to apply it in your very specific workflow using like XYZ. So an alternative job spec for the collections data officer role might read requires a combination of intellectual labour, digital labour, emotional labour, and the ability to work laterally, collaboratively across the museum. This is a constellation of working practices that Anne has honed over time. She acts as a human bridge between objects and data, a kind of interpreter for the museum service as it digitises its collection and moves things online in a structured, standardised way. Just as we saw in the care that Alison and her team at Search Engine directed at thinking about their digital activities, the digital work undertaken by Anne's team evidences an equivalent practice of care, an emotional labour of a certain kind. Part of this lies in the act of acknowledging that people remain fundamental to the success of any digitisation process in the museum. They know things the database can't. So much of what we do is based on like a working relationship and knowing who to ask about things. When you have people who leave, they take a little bit of their organisational knowledge and their the pillar of their like structure. It's like a, like a Jenga tower. They take out their little bit and you know, you've got to fill it again or you just leave it and it collapses and it's a big mess. My previous line manager um, was here for 29 years 
and she was the, the person who gave me my first job here so I was a volunteer in her department and then I applied for a job which back then was called corporate information and inquiries officer and it was three days a week mm-hmm. and I did the rest of my hours work in front of house and she had been here since 1992 you know I was mm-hmm. born in 1991 <laughs> so um which she always thought was hilarious and she knew so much and she knew so many different things and I just absorbed as much as I possibly could from her but I also absorbed this idea that actually you know we can store as much information as we as we want and as we possibly can on the database but people know things and can make connections that like the database can't really do um or at least it can't at the moment maybe it will be able to she would help anybody and she knew everything so I was like right if the database can't do that like I'm going to do my best and download her brain and I'll try and record it on the database I'll try and make sure that there's like it's all written down but ultimately you know I can't replicate her entire brain in the system but yeah she definitely instilled in me that idea of like try to remember everything and try to know as much as you can and pass it on like don't gatekeep tell everyone everything at all times if you can you know there's something else here Anne's work provides us with an access route to thinking more broadly about the connection between emotional labour, digital work in museums and gender in 2022. This is thinking which Science Museum Group has already begun in their yearly gender pay gap report, which shows the percentage difference between the average hourly rates of pay for men and women each year across the group. More on that shortly. So the docs officers and myself, we're all like young women, um, inventory level like roles like inventory teams they are mixed gender but I'm thinking you know in some of the projects that we've worked on they are overwhelmingly female and they Mm. are doing sort of your base level cataloguing interacting with the objects giving them records giving them descriptions all that kind of stuff and that is the absolute foundation of everything we want to do with our digital um like our objects in the digital sphere like you know we can't do anything with our objects unless we know what they are where they are are they hazardous? And the people who are doing that work are your docs officers, your collections care assistants, your um, assistant curators. I mean, obviously, there's more people doing it than that. Um, but I definitely feel, just going back to your other point about um, someone's, having, someone's having a great time. Um, Q Samaya Langley, talking about the relationship between gender and museum digital work. I particularly wanted to place Samaya next to Anne here because they are some years apart in their museum career trajectories, with Samaya having 20 plus years of working with technology in cultural settings, and Anne being earlier on in her career. We begin to see an alternative history of museum technology work through their testimonies. The problem with museum digital work is you get the, the kind of technical ICT complexity with the pay at women's roles and that's not you know that is across the sectors across the glam sector and I say you know from the 90s onwards um, just because we also know that some of those books that have been written where computing really was women's work until the other gender took it over and then could make the money out of it so it hasn't always been the domain of men Technology hasn't always been the domain of men. When there's money involved, <laughs> it tends to be the case. And I think this is this is really evident in the UK where traditional, I'm using air quotes here, but traditional women's work like nursing, like archival, 
archivist roles tend to get paid a lesser salary and then ICT roles tend to get paid an increased salary. Let's be clear. Museum work has always been more commonly undertaken by women than men, and the existence of the gender pay gap is an inevitable component of this reality. Last year at Science Museum Group, 65% of the workforce were women, while the remaining 35% were men. Arts Council England's latest Creative Case for Diversity report shows similar findings, with women reportedly making up 58% of those in permanent salaried roles in cultural organisations, with 45% in contractual positions. Meanwhile, men comprise just 33% and 37% respectively in these categories, with the remaining percentage unknown. As Science Museum Group's most recent gender pay gap report states, there remains an overall mean gender pay gap between the average hourly rates of pay for men and women at the organisation of 2.8%, which is a significant decrease on 4.5% of the previous year. In its commitment to eliminate the pay gap altogether, Science Museum Group has a robust action plan, which includes promoting inclusive leadership, reviewing and enhancing hybrid working models, annual reporting on the diversity of employees and volunteers, and introducing more guidance to support gender equality in the workplace. More details on these can be found on the Policies and Reports page of the organisation's website. A link to this will be put in the blurb for this episode. When starting to build a picture of the emotionality involved in some of the more hidden digital labour that happens in a museum, it would be remiss not to make a connection with the fact that a lot of this technical standardisation work is undertaken by women. And what is worthy of further study, more than is possible here, is the idea that new forms of work in museums, forms of work to have evolved with technological change, potentially appropriate gender conventions associated with previous forms of hidden museum work. In other words, there may be cause to worry if what was hidden and gendered before it was digital continues to be hidden and gendered now it's digital. I think it's useful for us to turn now briefly to some of the studies that Samaya mentions of women's work in science and tech over the last century. A major inspiration for this podcast is the work of historian Mar Hicks, who in their 2017 book Programmed Inequality describes how in the 1960s, with the rise of computing in the UK, the gender of those working in the field flipped from a large female workforce of computer programmers to a predominantly male one. When the computer came to be seen as, quote, the new train set for a generation of privileged young men. This bears resemblance to something Sophie Vora said to me when she linked documentation work at the museum to some of the hidden labour involved in the computerisation of railways. So if we're talking, for example, like our documentation teams Mm -hmm. and the people who deal with cataloguing and registration and those types of things, that is almost entirely women. And I think it's curious because if I'm going to throw this back to a kind of history of of women and and computing... Mm -hmm it was seen as like a low-skilled job and women did it. And actually, if we think about this in terms of rail technologies and, and rail development, women were at the forefront of the computerization of the railways, which I think is just fabulous in of itself. But it's that hidden that hidden labor, I think, that you know we've been talking about, that hidden, those hidden people who do so much to make sure that this place still um, rotates on its axis... But if you try to describe what they did or, you know, someone you told someone their job, they likely wouldn't immediately know what you were talking about or why it mattered. 
Um, but without them, we'd be lost in the sea of, of stuff and nothing would get done. And legally, we'd probably be in a lot of hot water as well based on the types of things that they do. So, yeah, it's, it's a kind of curious divide in terms of what it is. For my previous podcast, People Change Museums. People Change Museums. I was fortunate to interview Kelly Doyle, Open Knowledge Coordinator for the Smithsonian's American Women's History Initiative, or AWHI. Kelly introduced me to AWHI's project of better understanding the underrepresented activities of women who historically worked at Smithsonian Museums using data science methods to flag women staff and volunteers in the collections records and bring their activities to the surface. These efforts are worth rehearsing here because they could help inform how we surface our appreciation for the work of digitisation and collection services teams, such as the one at Science Museum Group. Staff at the Smithsonian found that prior to the 1960s and 70s, it was more common to collect the papers of someone who was a curator or primary investigator, someone typically male, or, if they were female, less likely to be seen worthy of preserving the records of than their male counterparts. As we know, in the study of the history of science, there is now a concerted effort to be more inclusive, and we are seeing museums like Smithsonian becoming more curious about those who worked in support roles, admin and tech positions in the past. One example that the team at AWHI uncovered was that of entomologist Sophie Lutterlow, who worked as a research assistant to insect curator Ralph Craybill at the Smithsonian's National Museum of Natural History from the late 1950s. An annual report mentions that Lutterlow and Craybill processed 300,000 specimens that year, but there are minimal details about Lutterlow's scientific work in Smithsonian's collections. Dr. Rebecca Dickoff from Smithsonian's Data Science Lab described Lutterlow thus. She's such a good example of someone who didn't get scientific credit for her work, but enabled so much scientific work to happen. Do check out the Wikipedia page on Sophie Lutterlow, as hers is an amazing story. She started work as a lift operator at the Smithsonian in 1943, as racial barriers prevented African Americans from direct employment in the museum's curatorial and science work. This may be a digression, but I hope a useful one. I want to use it to make the point that the work of docs officers like Anne may be similarly hidden from view but their activities are as valuable to the living history of the museum as that of other staff. If we are going to create genuinely inclusive museum spaces, we need to work harder to better see the connections between the history of working practices and the history of technology, for only then can we begin to grasp, to quote Hicks again, current concerns about underrepresentation in science, technology and engineering. Hicks continues. The history of women's role in computing helps explain gendered categories that still construct labour forces in the Anglo-American context today. Yet this history is often perceived as a specialised parallel narrative rather than a foundational one. When women do not fulfil the role of inventor or entrepreneur in a way comparable to the men who have up until now been the main focus of computing history, their labour is often regarded as not being integral to the main narrative of computing's history. My sense is that across the cultural and heritage industries there continue to be underexplored issues connected to the relationship between gender, pay, rights and digital activity. 
Further study is needed to more clearly see how inequality in cultural organisations is sustained through certain forms of systemic patterns that are being perpetuated by new digital activities associated with phenomena such as socially determined gender differences and implicit bias. For the purposes of our hidden constellation, the emotionality and care that we've seen catalyzed through digital activity and which is often undertaken by women at Science Museum Group is a cause for celebration, a template for the museum to come. And I think documentation is specialist. It's a specialist skill set. It's a specialist role. And it can be a career in and of itself. Like it doesn't have to be the stepping stone to moving on to, you know, managing an entire collection or being a curator or being the head of a department. It can be. And actually, I would argue that actually, if you've got that grounding, you're going to be a great head of department because documentation touches so many different things but it can be a career in itself and um yeah i would like it to be seen in that way Mm. Um, john stack director of digital at science museum group said every digital project is a transformation project Mm. this is particularly powerful when we place it in the context of anne's work getting people to care about something which is deeply unsexy like it's not fun to be like is this a shelf or is this a platform or is this a palette you know but we need people to at least care enough to come along for the ride with us so like I care about it because I think it's important but also because I've invested so much time and energy into it if I'm leading a meeting I always try to make sure that everyone's got access to everything beforehand that they've had the opportunity to read things they've had the opportunity to ask me any questions going into it and that we can get the most out of a meeting um and I think that I, that like meeting management, like relationship management, like generally trying to bring things together so that we've got something tangible out of it, does feel like emotional labour. Digital yeah. is going to become the thing. We need to build the infrastructure for that to be possible. So I need people to care, otherwise it's not going to happen. One of the ways that I have found have helped me is to... Although I do care very much about my job and I care about the work that I do and I think it's important is I'm really trying to reframe it. Reframing it as having this job and doing this work allows me to live the life that I want. And the life that I want is to enjoy and maintain the relationships that I have outside of work, have good relationships with my colleagues, you know, have enough flexibility to be able to take an hour at the end of the day to go and do something fun. But trying not to make it my whole identity and I think that that is something that people who come to work in museums um, do, you know, are, are prone to do because we, we don't do it for the pay obviously, we yeah. do it because we care about it and we're passionate about it but then you end up kind of crossing this boundary of making it your whole life and you know my sense of value of my, 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 my sense of self worth doesn't come from this job um, yeah. or at least it shouldn't, sometimes it does Anne cares about her digital labour This leads to feelings of vulnerability. She then feels that she must divest herself of her care, otherwise it crosses the boundary into being her whole life. I'm reminded here of the work of cultural sociologists, such as professors Eleonora Belfiore and Mark Banks, when they describe the ethical qualities of some cultural work. What we hear from Anne is similar evidence of, quote, the personal psychological costs and ethical dilemmas, end quote, that result in being part of driving technological change. To quote Belfiore, there is an invisible subsidy that takes place. Anne's work is a kind of moral endeavour, valuable work that points to the importance of Joan C. Tronto's idea of caring democracy, which she has defined as follows. 
a commitment to a genuine equality of voice and of reducing power differentials as much as possible in order to create the conditions for a meaningful democratic discussion of the nature of responsibility in society. When talking about how to be truly objective in science, Donna Haraway said, The moral is simple. Only partial perspective promises objective vision. Over this two-part episode, we've heard a series of partial perspectives discussing some of the oft-hidden aspects of digital work in the museum. We've heard about the multifaceted challenges facing those working digitally with large archives, about the role of emotional labour and possessing an attitude of care, about how gender can be a constituent part of this work, and about how sometimes this work is not felt to be valued as much as it might be, including by the workers themselves. Dr Philip Roberts, former associate curator at the National Science and Media Museum in Bradford, put it this way. There's definitely a hierarchy of values within this sector and probably most big museums and that there are, there are different levels and different grades of staff and they're absolutely thought about in different ways. There are people whose job it is to perform actions, to digitise a photograph to do the kind of on-the-ground work to get your collection catalogued. Um, But then as you go further and further up the chain, you get people who have no time to do ground-level work because they are doing strategic work, which means that there is a kind of disjuncture between people who are planning the strategy and the people who are implementing the strategy. Somewhere like SMG, it's such a huge organisation, so many different departments, and... You know, do do they need to know or do they know what MIMSI is? Do they know what a documentation officer does? Probably not. And that's partly on us. We need to talk about it more. We need the, we need the forums to do that talk, you know, conversation. So we have colleague briefings. Maybe I need to do a colleague briefing where I'm like, look at this nice spreadsheet. Um, but it's how to make it relevant, how to make it seem like it affects other people. Um, it's not lost on me how brave and open-minded Science Museum Group is to allow me to explore its workings so as to reflect more widely on what the future of work in cultural institutions might be if we think critically and with depth about hidden digital labour. Forgive the slight navel-gazingness of this, but I want to close this episode with a clip from the conversation I had with Sophie Vora when we got going about how hidden digital labour was linked with wider ambitions for inclusivity in museums. You know those conversations where suddenly your whole worldview explodes sideways a little? It was like that. If the real point is that we're trying to get ourselves out in a global way, in the sense that, yeah. okay, you can't come to my museum, how do you see us? How, how do you see me as much as we can see you and see that we're hopefully making an impact on you? And that has to be through digital. Like, yeah. you know, if you're going to find your little imagined community of, of people, they need to be engaged in somehow but if you're coming to us to nurture, to find knowledge to share knowledge to exchange it we can't go much further than you know the city walls as it mm-hmm. were if we're not finding better ways to reach out your desire for it to be a more embedded part of the day-to-day set of conversations constantly happening mm-hmm. between digital people content development people actually and researchers yeah. and curators I think, and this might be a leap, that approach sounds to me like a kind of dismantling of, of hierarchies mm-hmm. and of cultures of expertise. Yeah. And I would put it to you, I wonder whether that is also 
I think, a feminist approach to work, which is about developing a spirit of openness, of care, of like collective imagining, of rearticulating infrastructures. And I guess I'm, I'm keen to go there, Sophie, because I just feel like we've been very dominated within the, by the museum sector within a very, with a very sort of paternalistic, hierarchical, <laughs> patriarchal <laughs> yes. way of doing things. And, and, and actually, um, the way technology has currently been embedded seems to be kind of continuing to reiterate that mm. pattern. So I'm kind of really keen for us to try and ta- start articulating, you know, if we're going to use these technologies, we need to appropriate them in a feminist way. So I'm just... Yeah. That's a theory I'm throwing at you and you can agree or disagree. No, or... I absolutely agree with that. I And I think it's that whole... And, and actually comes under the mantra of what we try to do within our museum. And, and it comes under yeah. that kind of science capital umbrella if we were going to make it an SMG version of something. Is that equitable version yeah. of, of digital engagement and digital labour in the sense that... Um, you know, we talk about this in terms of how we're dealing with it on the outside, but actually how are we dealing with this on the inside? It's about talking to one another. So actually it's probably less tricky than we think. It's just that mm. we need to sit in a room together, be that a digital one, a virtual one, or an actual one, and speak about it rather than talking in amongst ourselves and saying, this would be a really great idea. Okay, well, who have you told? <laughs> mm-hmm. Are you telling the right people? And to feel that it is natural to want to start and open up those conversations about innovative stuff. So perhaps perhaps it's more than that, but maybe, you know, the first step is to actually just open the door and mm-hmm. say, come in, let's chat. Thanks to everyone who participated in this two-part episode, especially Anne, Alison, Olivia, Tanya, Samaya and Sophie. Joan Tronto says that nothing will get better until societies figure out how to put responsibilities for caring at the centre. What we see in the work of these women is just such a responsibility for care, of their own part of the museum, as manifested in their digital labour and their commitment to digital activity. In the next episode, I'll be focusing on the distributed nature of digital labour at Science Museum Group how site-specific and responsive it can be, depending on the specific needs of the place, audience or collection of each individual museum within the group. See you here next time at The Hidden Constellation. You've been listening to The Hidden Constellation, presented by me, Dr Sophie Frost. Voice actors are Chris Thorpe-Tracy, Reefa Thorpe-Tracy, Ben Murray and Stephen Orchard. Sound design and editing is by Chris Thorpe-Tracy of Lo-Fi Arts. My thanks go to everyone who participated in this episode, and most of all to the Science Museum Group, for their time and generosity in letting me ask lots of questions for well over a year. This podcast has been created as part of the One by One Research Initiative, led by the School of Museum Studies at the University of Leicester and funded by the Arts and Humanities Research Council. If you enjoyed this podcast, please do subscribe and leave us a review. Thank you for listening. Go